God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by infesting Egypt with frogs. The recollection continues in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I am going to strike your entire territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you, your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Extend your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron extended his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. However, the soothsayer priests did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go so that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I plead for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they be left only in the Nile? Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and from your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The Egyptian goddess associated with frogs was Heket. She has been described by Richard Wilkinson in the following way. A frog goddess who assisted in the fashioning the child in the womb and who presided over its birth. Heket is first attested in the pyramid texts, where she assists the deceased king in his journey to the sky. Her connection with birth is first apparent in the Middle Kingdom story preserved in the Westcar Papyrus, however, in which the goddess hastened the birth of the three kings who inaugurated the Fifth Dynasty. Also from this time, the term servant of Heket may have been applied to midwives in Egyptian society. Heket was represented as a frog, or as a woman with a frog's head. Even though these descriptions of Heket span vast periods of Egyptian history, what this compressed description reveals is the symbolism of the frog in ancient Egyptian mythology. We recall that an idol is a symbolic representation of anything or anyone we worship, anything or anyone we associate with control or power over some aspect of our lives, which we try to appease or cajole in order to gain greater personal control symbolic representations of the realities that we allow to shape our lives and our worship and to which we pay homage to increase our control of our lives. For the ancient Egyptians, frogs were physical creatures through which one could gain access to the goddess of human creation and procreation. The Egyptians believed that the governance of the world was placed in the hands of spiritual beings and that to influence those spiritual beings one needed to discover how best to worship them. When God used the recently polluted Nile River as a breeding ground for frogs, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon the deity that they associated with frogs to save them from God's curse. Again, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate the plague, that is, they increased the number of frogs that the, wilds of the waters of the Nile were producing. But they could not purge Egypt of the frogs. God again was demonstrating his authority over the domains of the gods of Egypt. Frogs represented procreation and birth for the Egyptians. 
At times in Egyptian history, they gave credit to the frog-headed goddess Heket for breathing life into human beings. Of course, God had told the Israelites that it was he who breathed life, himself, into the dust, bringing humans to life as living beings. And it was he who recognized that it was not good for the human to be alone. And it was he who created two genders out of the one human. And it was he who blessed humanity with the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The Egyptians had taken these activities and instructions of God and assigned them to the lordship of Heket. And the way in which Exodus has narrated the event increases our confidence that it was this goddess of Egypt that God was judging. First, the plague was one of fecundity. If that word is new to you, allow me to introduce you to it. Fecundity has to do with the capacity to produce a massive amount of offspring. I first encountered the term in Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. In her chapter entitled Fecundity, she has written the following. I don't know what it is about fecundity that so appalls. I suppose it's the teeming evidence that birth and growth, which we value, are ubiquitous and blind, and that life itself is so astonishingly cheap that nature is as careless as it is bountiful, and that with extravagance goes a crushing waste that will one day include our own cheap lives. Henle's loops and all, every glistening egg, is memento mori. That is a memento to death. Part of what Dillard has dealt with in that chapter is the wastefulness of life on Earth, particularly in the world of insects, amphibians, and crustaceans. Ever since reading Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, when I hear the word fecundity, I think of this wastefulness. And yet, as abundant as insect eggs, fish eggs, and barnacle larvae may be, human procreation historically has proven to be more fickle, and consequently, more precious. It's perhaps not surprising that the Egyptians would have chosen frogs as the symbol of fertility. In their world, there were always plenty of them, and their mating calls filled the nights. So God cursed them with frog fecundity. He said the Nile, which had been turned to blood, would swarm with frogs. The Hebrew word translated swarm is sharak, the same word God had spoken in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, when he said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. The bloodiness of the Nile producing an overabundance of frogs and the correlation of blood and water with childbirth would not have been lost on the people of ancient Egypt. And even more, God promised Pharaoh that the frogs would be in their bedrooms, upon their beds, and in their food. It is upon the Egyptian goddess of fertility that God was executing judgment. Sex, sexuality, and procreation have been inextricably linked both to each other and to the divine throughout human history. The First Testament is filled with references to the Canaanite god Baal and the Canaanite goddess Astarte. Wilkinson has described Baal as follows. Baal was the West Semitic storm god and the centrally important deity of the Canaanites. Believed to be active in storms, he was known as rider of the clouds and lord of heaven and earth. He also controlled the earth's fertility. The reign of Baal was seen as a source of fertility and it was associated with semen. Astarte was a female fertility goddess, one of several who were to be inseminated by Baal's reigns if earthly fecundity were to continue. One of Baal's chief rivals was Mot, who among other attestations was the god of sterility. Human sex acts were common components of the worship of these deities, which has been attested not only in the First Testament but in other historical sources as well. The conflation of sexual intercourse, fertility, procreation, and worship of the divine was a feature of all the still-known religions of the ancient Near East, with the exception of that of Torah-observant Israel. 
a surprising number of deities, both in Egypt and in the cultures of the ancient Near East, were associated with fertility, and these gods are worshipped still in the West. However, in our day, they seem all to have been gathered under one name, and as the old adage continues to insist, it sells. In the West, we still worship the god of sex. In the telling of the prophets of Israel, human sexuality was a secondary creation of God. In the words of Genesis, and this is chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Moving on to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. God created humanity first. Afterwards, God separated male from female. God's purpose for this secondary act has been stated explicitly in Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God differentiated male and female for the purpose of fertility, fecundity, procreation. In other words, God created two genders out of the one so that the human would no longer be alone. The reunification of male and female through sexual intimacy is marriage, and what results is a new family. This way of describing human creation and the divine establishment of the home is fundamental for the worldview of the Christian scriptures. Though sexual intercourse may be enjoyable, And though humans may be capable of desiring sexual intimacy quite liberally, the act of sexual intimacy was gifted to humanity by God in a context and for a purpose. Throughout history, humanity has desired to partake in this gift for other purposes and in other contexts. But the voice of the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus, as multiple as those voices and as spread through time as they are, are univocal in the conviction that sexual intimacy was created by God and gifted to humans as integral components of marriage, home, and family. For the ancient Egyptians, these things were separable, and the diverse aspects of sexuality were separately governed by diverse deities. Heket, for instance, was goddess only of procreation. But for God and for the Christian scriptures, these things are not separable. Gender, marriage, sexual intimacy, and procreation are contextualized in the story of the creation of humans as a remedy to the aloneness of the first human. As in the ancient world, gender, marriage, sex, and procreation have been decontextualized from God's story. Gender is now a constructed identity and therefore fluid. Marriage is now simply a legal arrangement which is unnecessary for sexual intimacy and the rearing of children. 
sex has become an intimate exchange between consenting partners, and procreation has come to be understood as merely a consequence of physical expressions of love, whether it is sought, embraced, avoided, or terminated. When God assaults one of these gods, he assaults them all, because for God they are not separable, and God is presently at war with the god of sex again. As he sent frogs upon Egypt, he is sending plagues upon us as well, and these plagues are not hard to discern. God has assaulted this God on many occasions throughout history, and God has proven consistent in his execution of judgment. The Apostle Paul has revealed the Lord's tactics against this God in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. The scriptures say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, people having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It seems common among fundamentalists and evangelical Christians to assume that God's judgment comes upon people and nations and cultures because of the sins described in Romans 1. But that is not what Paul has proclaimed. The apostle has proclaimed that the proliferation of these lusts and their resultant indulgence are consequences of God's judgment, not causes. As Paul has revealed, for they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Paul has proclaimed that the rejection of God and the worship of false gods, that is, false ideas, false ideologies, results in sin fecundity. In other words, the desire for and indulgence of sexual intimacy outside of the context for which these things were created is a sign that God is executing judgment on a culture. As the frogs were assigned to Egypt of God's judgment of their goddess of fertility, 
So the proliferation of sexual desires, sexual acts, and sexual encounters outside of those experienced by a man and a woman within a covenant of marriage for the purpose of establishing and maintaining a home and a family is a sign to us that God is executing judgment on the God of sex. What then are true followers of Jesus to do? If we're living in exile in a nation under judgment in which the desire for and indulgence in biblically unlawful practices is growing exponentially, how are we to respond? The Apostle Paul's instructions are to be found in chapter 12 of the book of Romans and following. We discussed Romans 13, 1-7 in, la- in episode 2. Perhaps Paul's summary exhortations in Romans 12 can guide us in this season as well. Paul wrote this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly, if prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love must be free of hypocrisy, detest what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep also with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To my reading, Paul's words hardly need explanation, although what is often forgotten must be remembered. These words of Paul in Romans 12 were written to a collection of churches living in a city under the very judgment Paul described in Romans chapter 1. They, like us, were living in a culture that was experiencing God's judgment of the false god of sex, through the proliferation of sinful desires and indulgences. And it was to those Christians that Paul wrote these words. How are we to live in the midst of these plagues? Read Romans chapters 12 through 16 as many times as you must to remember who we are called to be.